All right, Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Matt. Um, well, good morning. Peace be with you. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Reed. I'm the lead pastor of Sojourn Montrose. Um, it's my joy to be back at Sojourn Heights. I've been here a couple times to preach, but my original time at Sojourn Heights was back in July of early June of 2020, uh, 2013 when we were in the other building meeting as a core team, getting ready to plant Sojourn Montrose, which we celebrate 10 years of October 20th. So... Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's really amazing what the Lord has done in sustaining us in that neighborhood um, all, all these years. So really grateful for Sojourn Heights. It always feels like coming home a little bit uh, for me when I get to preach here. And by get, I mean when Paul and Dodds are gone and they need somebody to fill in. Um, so yeah, I, I'm glad to be with you. As you saw, I get the, the great privilege of continuing our time in Hebrews. And so... Um, we don't know the author, so I'll keep saying the author of Hebrews all throughout. Um, but, but let me pray for my time, your time, our time together, um, especially since Matt already acknowledged that it might be better that I just don't preach and we just leave. Let me pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for laughter among brothers and sisters, unity with brothers and sisters. And we pray that your word in Hebrews um, would be alive to us today as it was um, all those years ago to those original hearers. And as this author does use a psalm to, <laughs> to speak truth to them? Would it be alive as it was to those ancient Israelites when they sung and prayed these psalms the first time? Lord, your word transcends, transcends time, and so we, we step into holy ground when we unpack it. So be with me. Use my imperfect mouth and our imperfect ears to hear your word. Would you teach us by your word this morning? Would, uh, yeah. We, we love you. We trust you. We know that you are present among us because you've told us in your word that where two or more are gathered, there you are. And so here you are. Here you are. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
Well, I know y'all have been going through Hebrews for a little while, and so um, my understanding is last week Paul preached the, the verses preceding this, which are very much a continuation of this uh, thought. So in, at the beginning of chapter 3, um, the author of Hebrews compares how Moses related to God's people, the church, and God's house, um, versus how Jesus now relates to his people, the church. Um, and, and all throughout Hebrews, there's just there's this mounting evidence upon evidence upon evidence of how Jesus is better than everything that the Old Testament has promised, that Jesus is better and how Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament promises. And, um, and, and really he's writing or she is writing to a largely Jewish Christian audience, these Jews who have either um, converted because they were they were witnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection and teaching, or they've heard about what Jesus has been saying, about what it means, how he's fulfilled all the scriptures. And so these are Jewish Christians. They are, they are men and women who left Second Temple Judaism for Christianity, and that's who the author is writing to. But it, it becomes apparent as the letter continues that, um, that some of them have either left or are considering leaving Christianity to return to Second Temple Judaism. And we don't know exactly why we, we could guess, but um, the context of the letter is this. Why would you depart from this Jesus? Why would you depart from the system that he has inaugurated, mainly salvation by grace through faith, back to the old ways of Judaism, the old covenant, which really mandates works? This is the new covenant. And the author, namely the Holy Spirit, um, wants them to see and us to see how this old covenant is not bad, but simply a shadow of what Jesus would come to do, who Jesus would be, and the covenant that Jesus brings, the new covenant. And so this is where we pick up, and we're smack dab in the middle of a grander and complete argument regarding Christianity's superiority over the temptation to return to the ways of Second Temple Judaism. But what does this have to do with us here in 2023? Well, uh, for Christians, correct me if I'm wrong in the room, you can do that after we conclude, but um, I don't think you're tempted to, to run to Judaism right now. You, you might be, but my, my guess is that you're not tempted to go back to the temple Judaism system uh, here in Houston. However, for many of us who are converted to Christianity, either as a child or later in life, the temptation to return is still there. It, it just has a different label, I would argue. We might not be returning to what we were before as far as Judaism is concerned, but we are tempted to return to where we were before we found faith in Jesus, or we were saved in Jesus. Um, And I said, I think it just has a different label. Here's what I'd argue. I'd argue that deconstruction, you've probably heard that term, um, deconstruction is the most popular characterization of the abandonment of Christ by Christians and non-Christians today. And I say that knowing that there's not a single definition of the term deconstruction that probably all of us could agree on, but here are a couple different ones, and I'll tell you what, one, what I'm going to talk about when I'm using the word deconstruction this morning. Some individuals say they are deconstructing when, in a real good faith attempt, they are examining the Word of God, they are going to community and pastors and trusted friends and believers to strip away unhelpful, legalistic, and sometimes abusive notions of Christianity. They're trying to strip those things away from real Christianity found in God's Word. 
I just want to say, I think this type of deconstruction, if that's what you mean when you say I'm going through a deconstruction, I think this type of deconstruction is incredibly noble. It's incredibly dip, difficult work. But, but when true believers guided by the Holy Spirit set out to deepen their faith by removing untrue aspects of the Christian life, we as a community should and can cheer them on. We can walk with them. We can pray with them. And we can and should encourage them. However... There's another definition hiding under the label of deconstruction, and this has become just as common in my experience as a pastor for the use of deconstruction. Deconstruction in this way is used to describe the process of turning away from Christianity found in God's Word, turning away from that towards some sort of worldly spirituality or morality that abandons the doctrines of the faith entirely. This type of deconstruction um, lends itself to a conclusion that would abandon what we know to be true faith. Abandoning the notion that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died for our sin and that He rose again. Abandoning Him as anything but maybe a teacher who might have lived. In this passage this morning, the author of Hebrews calls this type of deconstruction hardening your hearts. These are the people who leave our churches, not for a new church or not because they're moving, but because they have decided under the label of deconstruction that honestly Christianity is not true and not for them. This morning I'm going to use this term deconstruction a few times and this is what I'm talking about. So I'm not talking about honest, faithful evaluation that strips away bad untruths to discover and build a healthy and stronger relationship with God. If that's your deconstruction journey that includes a reconstruction, I'm for you, I'm praying for you, let your pastors, let your parish know, don't do it alone, but we're for you. I'm talking about deconstruction instead that is code for leaving Christianity and abandoning the faith. I'm not talking about people who are remodeling the home, put another way. I'm talking about people who want to tear down the whole house of their faith and move to the woods. As we continue this morning, I actually think Hebrews is one of the best tools that you have in your toolkit for walking with brothers, sisters, friends, parish members, family members, anyone in your life who might be deconstructing in this type of way, deconstructing out of their faith. Hebrews is an amazing tool for that. So with that as a foundation, let's jump into the text. The first five verses of the section that we are looking at this morning are actually just a a direct quotation of Psalm 95, where the author does something amazing. They take Psalm 95, this ancient Israelite song and prayer, and they apply it to Christians that are thinking about returning to Second Temple Judaism. And really, in doing that, they apply it to us as Christians today, right? Like, so the today, if you hear his voice today, that today is today. It was back then, and it was for the Israelites. So there's three ways that we can look at this, but that today is this day. This this gives us a glimpse, and it, it instructs us on how we can use the Psalms in our own personal life, right? Like, the author attributes this Psalm to the Holy Spirit. So God himself wrote this, and it's for you today. This is what these verses say together. Let's read them. Verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest." 
we don't actually have to wonder what, this, what event this psalm is talking about. Two reasons. One, the author of Hebrews in verse 8 tells us, saying, do not harden your hearts as in the, the rebellion in the days of the wilderness. But if you, if you actually go to Psalm 95, you find out that this in Hebrews is a paraphrase of what Psalm 95 really says, but it's uncontroversial. This is what it says. Do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. Um, the reason this is uncontroversial is that the location given in Psalm 95 tells us the events that the psalmist is talking about, and those events happen to be the same events that the author of Hebrews is talking about when he references the rebellion, and a third reason we can, uh, we, we can zero in on the event that they're talking about is that in Hebrews 3.15, he just straight up tells us what event we're talking about, right? They repeat one stanza from Psalm 95 and then expand upon it, so they repeat this stanza, 15, verse 15 of Hebrews, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Expanded upon here, verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his west? his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. The author of Hebrews is giving us a picture of what it looks like to harden our hearts. He's defining, or she's defining, what hardening our hearts look like. They repeat that part of the psalm with purpose. What they're describing is this scene after the Exodus. It's it's found in Numbers 14. You can turn there if you'd like. We'll get to it in just a moment. But at this point, um, in the narrative of the Israelites, they have been, you, you might remember the story of the Exodus, they've been freed from slavery, freed from the Egyptians, freed from being owned and laboring under the Egyptian rulership, and they've been They've gone up to Sinai and they've received the law of the Lord and now they are wandering in the wilderness hoping to enter the rest of God, the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. But we know this journey has not been easy for the Israelites due to their stubbornness and their backsliding and uh, really their lack of faith and belief that God had good things for them. They just, they just continually failed to believe that what God had for them as they journeyed towards the promised land was going to be good. But in chapter 13, God is, in Numbers chapter 13, God is about to let the Israelites enter Canaan. He's about to let them enter this promised land, even though they've backslid a bunch. And so the Israelites send spies into the land in order to give a report about what the land is like and who's inhabiting the land. And they come back after 40 days, which is significant, and they return. And the report is that the land is fruitful. They say the land is flowing with milk and honey. It's just like God said it would be. The land is wonderful. We'll be able to build houses there and get out of these tents. and We'll be able to rest there and worship there. And it'll be wonderful. But then the soldiers report this, that there are huge, strong, and numerous armies in the land. They say, uh, compared to the soldiers there, we are but grasshoppers, is what they say at the end of chapter 13, saying we're, we're so small. Those are huge soldiers in Canaan. And this is where the story picks up in chapter 14. This is the Israelites' response to the the report of the spies. It says this, All the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. 
And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, the priests, the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little children will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they look at each other and say, let's choose a new leader and go back to slavery. Let's go back to Egypt. This is an amazing response to God, right? Because who has promised they would enter the promised land? Yahweh, God, a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire, a voice when they heard it at Sinai, they said, don't let God talk to us anymore. His voice makes me want to die. It's so powerful. It shakes me to my core. That God has said, this is your land. I will deliver it to you. Fear not. And they say, oh, that we would be dead in Egypt, in slavery. Skipping down, the Lord says this in verse 11. Um, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite all of the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and I will disinherit them. And you, Moses, I will make a nation greater and mightier than they. God is rightfully and justly angry with the belief, with, with the unbelief of his people But Moses, who we know from last week, and we're going to know from, as Hebrews keeps unfolding, who is a shadow of the mediator that Jesus is, Moses says, I will intercede. And what he does is amazing. He appeals to who God is. He turns God's character back on God and reminds God of God's character. And this is not a trick. It's not an unfaithful presentation. It's actually a, a step in great faith. Moses says, God is justly angry. God deserves to do exactly what he said he does to the stiff-necked people, to the stubborn people, and yet I'm going to remind God of what he has said his character is in faith that he will relent. This is what Moses says, verse 17. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation. So please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So Moses is saying, like, this is like, transgression 15 or 13 or something, like just as all the way from Egypt to now you keep forgiving them, will you continue to do that? (laughs) Then the Lord says this, I have pardoned according to your word, according to your ask, but truly as I live and all the earth shall be filled um, with my glory, they will not enter my rest, is what God says. These people who he delivered from Egypt will not see the promised land And just like the spies were looking for 40 days and 40 nights, he says, in the wilderness, you'll be for 40 years waiting. You will never enter my rest. So that's the story of Moses that the psalm is referring to. And the author of Hebrews takes that story and says, this is what you are doing, Jewish Christians, when you say, oh, that we could be back in the Judaism system of Second Temple Judaism. You get that? He's saying, this is exactly what you're doing. He says, uh, the, the Jews there, the Jewish Christians are saying, hey, we're being oppressed and killed for our belief in Jesus. We're being thrown in prison. And we kind, of, we kind of missed the old days when we were Jewish and we could do sacrifices in the temple and we understood the moral code and, and the feasts and everything. And so maybe we'll just go back to Judaism. 
The author of Hebrews says this is just like the Israelites who desired to go back to Egypt. And what they desired was to die there, to be enslaved there. It's a compelling point of application. In Numbers, God says, I've given them freedom and I've given them sign after sign after sign. And again, they just don't believe in me. And for the Israelites, he says, you will never enter my rest unless you believe in me. And when you believe in me, you know that what I have for you is good. Even if it doesn't seem like it, what I have for you is good. Um, you'll see next week uh, the point about entering God's rest worked out in detail when, when the author of Hebrews will repeat, they shall not enter my rest twice in the passage. But right now he only repeats one part, do not harden your hearts. So that's what we'll focus on this morning. They chose to grumble. They chose, even with the signs of God, they chose to harden their hearts towards belief. And we are told their bodies fell in the wilderness. They never reach the rest of God, the promised land, the land of true rest, the land of milk and honey and life and water and dwelling with God as he's present among them. And amazingly, this applies to us Christians today who are considering deconstructing in the way that I described, who have abandoned truth in Jesus altogether. They've hardened their hearts and deconstructed out of belief. And, and the author of Hebrews says they will never enter God's rest. They'll never enter true rest unless you turn back and believe. And the way of the world right now, I mean, we all feel this. We can probably all agree. The way of the world right now is it, tempting to live without moral obligation, to live into promiscuity, to live without obligation to God and community, to live for self and self-gain and self-fulfillment. This is tempting for me. <laughs> However, here we learn that if we are yearning to deconstruct and abandon our faith for the way of the world, we are no better than the freed slaves of Egypt who cry out, it's better that we would be slaves to sin than with God in the land he's promised. It's better that we would die in the world than be here with God, is what they say. Um, going back, thinking in Exodus, in Exodus 32, one of the first mistakes the Israelites famously make is that after they are freed from slavery in Egypt, they, they make this golden calf and they worship it as if this cow had redeemed them from Egypt and not God. And so Moses goes for the first time, really, and tries to intercede for the people of God, and God says, okay, what they have done is horrible. They've fashioned this idol and they've decided to worship it instead of me. But Moses is interceding and he's appealing to God's character and he's saying, God, will you forgive them? God, will you forgive them? And God says this, okay, I will not destroy them for this wicked thing that they have done, worshiping this idol that they've fashioned. So I will let you go into the promised land. However, God says, I will not go with you. You can go, but I won't go with you. Moses' response to this in Exodus 32 is, oh God, we won't go. He says, if it's the promised land, if it's a land that's fruitful, if it's a land that's flowing with milk and honey, if it's a land that has everything we've desired, if it stops our wandering, if it stops our tent dwelling, if it allows us to build cities and a temple, if all of that is true, but you won't go with us, we don't want to go. Moses says, it's not a promised land. It's not a land of rest if your presence is not there. The same is true today. Don't 
Don't fall for the lie that whatever promised land the world is trying to sell us on, don't fall for the lie that it's better to go there without God's presence than it would be to remain in whatever we're in, whatever season we're in, so long as we have the presence of God. Right? Like, it's better to have Jesus and suffer than to prosper on earth without him. It's better to have Jesus and weep than it is to have joy in the world for a fleeting moment without him. It's better to have Jesus and lose friends even than have peace with everyone but not have peace with God. It's better to have his presence. It's better to have Jesus. So the author of Hebrews tells us, don't harden your hearts. Israelites, don't harden your hearts in unbelief and yearn for slavery and death in Egypt. Jewish Christians, don't harden your hearts in unbelief and yearn for slavery and death in a moral system of Judaism that can't save you. And Christians today, don't harden your hearts in unbelief and deconstruct out of true faith and out of the presence of Christ. Don't yearn for the things of the world because in doing so, what you yearn for, even if it might fulfill you as a shadow of my fulfillment on earth, what you yearn for is slavery and death and the absence of my presence. If this is the command, don't harden your hearts, how do we combat this? How do we avoid the hardening of our hearts? What should we do? Well, um, what's the cure? What's the remedy? How do we avoid hardening hearts that lead to unbelief, to slavery, sin, and ultimately death? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us, it's verse 12, the verse we skipped, it says this, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So first, we're instructed to take care, to take care of ourselves because our evil and unbelieving heart could lead us away from the living God. The prophet Jeremiah and Jesus both tell us that the heart of flesh and its desires are evil. So the author says, take care. Don't just follow your heart if it will pull you away from God himself in Christ. Don't follow your heart away from God's presence. Instead, and here's the defense against heart hardening that we should press into. He says this, exhort one another every day so that we wouldn't be hardened by sin. The instruction is simple yet radical. It's easy yet difficult. He said, be with one another every day that's called today exhort one another, encourage each other, love one another, remind each other of the truth of God in Christ. That means in your parishes, in your coffee shops, on Sunday mornings, at the Sunday picnic, encourage each other in the truth of Jesus. Remind each other that he is present. Remind each other that he knows and loves you and that his presence is better than anything, any promised land that this world could offer. Remind each other of Christ. Why and how can we do this? Because verse 14 says that we share in Christ. We, the church, are one. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We hold together in confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done. How are we one in Christ? How do we share in Christ? Well, this is just the gospel, and it's what the author of Hebrews wants us to remember. It's who they want us to remember that Jesus really is as a greater Moses, as a greater intercessor, In the wilderness, Moses reminds God that God will forgive and clear transgression. But also Moses reminds God of something interesting. He says, God, of course you will never forgive the guilty, 
but aren't the Israelites guilty? Haven't they just transgressed? Moses is asking something paradoxical, it seems. He's saying, I know we've sinned. I know we're guilty. Please forgive us. Of course, you won't ever forgive the guilty. This is what he's appealing to. Jesus lives the perfect life of perfect righteousness, completely free from sin. In his death and resurrection, that perfect life, that guiltless life, is applied to those who believe in him. His righteousness is applied to those who believe in him, but not just that. When he dies a sacrificial death, dealing with God's wrath towards our sin, towards the guilty, and in his resurrection, that payment for sin is counted toward our sin. So you who believe in Jesus, not only is his righteousness applied to you, his payment for your sin is applied to you. This is why uh, the, the, song, or the, the hymn, Rock of Ages, says, Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. As the psalm says, if you hear his true voice, if you believe in him, don't abandon him. Today, if you hear him, don't harden your heart. Don't yearn to go back toward slavery and sin. Don't yearn for a false land of rest when he, Jesus, by his body and his blood, has purchased us entry into the true rest, the true promised land. We who are in Jesus are found as not guilty. Our transgressions are cleared through his death, and his righteousness is applied to us through his perfect life. The, the call is for us not to go astray in our hearts, and the answer, the way we do this, is simply reminding each other of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So brothers and sisters, take care to not harden your hearts. We have to believe and remind one another that Jesus is better than the things of this world. There's no return to life before him that gives rest. There's not, there's, not a better, uh, there's not a better promised land out there. It's not better to have the world and not have this Jesus. You may be in a season of wandering in the wilderness. Um, the Israelites made the mistake of assuming that God had bad things for them because they were wandering in the wilderness when in fact he was trying to teach them about his righteousness, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his rest. But you might be in a season of wandering in the wilderness. You might be deconstructing even, or maybe that's a label you've used in the past, trying to figure out what's true and from Jesus and separating that from what's falsely been attributed to him, either by family or a bad church experience or whatever. And if you are, the author of Hebrews warns us, don't do that alone. Don't wander alone take care, encourage each other daily. If you are going through that, let the people of Sojourn Heights know so that they can encourage you daily with what's true about God, what God has said is true about Him, and therefore what God has said is true about you, that you are known, that you are forgiven in belief in Him. Hold fast to the confidence we have in His Word by His Spirit in his body and blood, which we come to the table every week. And remember, we, we remember who he has done, what, what he has done and who he is, right? When we come to the Lord's table, we hold fast to this in remembrance of him who is our righteousness, who is our mediator, who paid the penalty for our sin, and who is, you'll find out next week, our rest. Let's pray. Lord, forgive me when I have, um, when I am tempted and succumb to the temptation that the world without you is better than you.
forgive us when we are tempted to believe that that it was better when we were slaves to sin without knowing you, Lord. We, I hope we hear from your word this morning, Lord, and maybe right now in our hearts, Holy Spirit, would you speak that we who are in your presence, regardless of circumstance, of suffering, of doubt, of trial, oh, it's better to be in your presence than it would be to be alone without you. Maybe there's some in the room, Lord, that are feeling like you are distant. I pray that that would change today and through your word and community and prayer and sermon and song and sacrament that we would feel your presence, that they would feel your presence. Lord, we need you to be our mediator. We need you to protect our hearts from hardening within us, soften our hearts through your people, through your word, through these, through these systems and practices and fellowship that you have given us here at Sojourn Heights and at Sojourn Montrose and at Sojourn Houston and in the church global, Lord, would you protect your people by softening their hearts The, the song this morning said something to the effect of, um, would we not outlive our love for you? What a wonderful line. We pray that that's true of all of us who have faith and belief in you this morning, that we would not outlive our love for you, that all the days of our life would be lived in your presence. As, as suffering and trial hit us like waves, would we stand firm would you anchor us in your truth and hope, Lord? We love you as we come to the table. Would you remind us of these good, wonderful things in your word? We pray this in your name. Amen.